This talk was recorded by Canvas Outreach Minneapolis, the College Ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church, as a part of the 2021 Summer Training Project. For more information on Summer Training Project or Canvas Outreach Minneapolis, visit cominneapolis.org. Um, and the way that he defines femininity is he says this, 
At the heart of mature womanhood is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a most relationships. Um, and I think that that definition is really, really confusing because what do you do if you're not in a relationship? What do you do as a woman if you're not, if there's not that woman in your life? And what does that, there's nothing in that definition that talks about how you as a woman relate to God. That definition is, is only telling you who you are in how you relate and how you relate. Um, so I think that definition is, um, is lacking a, a lot because it doesn't help you as a single woman, you in any relationship, it doesn't help you understand um, who are you, just you. <laughs> Not in a relationship to men, but just you. Um, but I also want to validate, I think that there's reasons why um, this is a really sensitive topic for women, because I think historically, again, both ways that the Christian culture and secular culture have talked about women can just be really unhelpful. And I'm going to read one more quote, um, and I don't want to read this because um, I don't want this to come across as like being angry or aggressive, but I just want to validate like there are some really unhelpful things being said about women in our culture right now. Um, so this is an, another article written by a really prominent um, Christian theologian, and the article is called Restoring Sexism. And this is what this person wrote. Um, if you were a male and you were conceived, this means that at that moment God was assigning to you the duties of provision and protection. If you were a woman and conceived, you would be assigned duties of bearing children and nurturing and making sandwiches. We have questions. When there is odd noise in the basement in the middle of the night, which one should go check? God wants the one with the XY bonus test to go check. When dinner needs to be prepared, who is responsible to do that? Of course, the one with XX bonus test should do that. We should take out the garbage, XY. We should go to war, XY. We should then tune in and put such X. So I think that um, the reason I'm sharing this is just to show I think that it is a confusing and honestly a really hard thing for women and Christian cultures to try to find examples of what does it mean to be a biblical woman because the definitions that are given to us are typically only given to us in how we should relate with men that we need to or like this. They're so, so, so specific that it just feels really, really demeaning. Um, and I don't think secular culture is any better. And I think Dayton did a really great job of helping us see that last week, that culture would try to minimize the differences between men and women. And I also think that that's dehumanizing. I don't think that that's a helpful way to talk about women. Um, but I feel a lot more passionate about calling out the way that Christian culture is doing this because I think our churches in general, we're better, I think, at recognizing what secular culture is saying wrong <laughs> about women. But I think it can be, um, it can hide more in Christian culture. So as I've gotten older and as I've interacted with more and more men and women, I think that there's a much better way to talk about women and men. Um, and I think it's to talk about what's the core purpose of men and women. Like what's at the heart of femininity and masculinity. And I think that when you get to the essence, that's actually a much more dignifying and flourishing conversation to have because it means that um, how you live out that essence, how you live out that purpose can look different. So that's my hope in this talk is to try to capture what the essence of femininity is. And kind of my biggest point, and, and this is true for both masculinity and femininity, is that femininity says something unique about who God is. And I think that when I heard that for the first time, <laughs> that like shook me to my core because 
Um, you hear a lot that um, you know, man is created in the image of God and then woman is created from man. And I don't know if I've ever heard that femininity just on its own, not in marriage, not as a mother, but just on its own, femininity says something unique about the heart of God. And the reason why I say that is because God didn't have to create two genders. Um, God could have created a species in which there was only one gender. He really could have done that. Uh, but he didn't. He created two. And I think that both masculinity and femininity have something unique to say about who God is. So this is the outline of my talk. We're going to talk about what is, and this is going to follow the same kind of pathway that Dayton used last week. So we're going to talk about what was God's purpose for femininity when he created it. What is his curse, the specific curse on women? Um, how does God redeem that curse? And then how is God restoring us today? So let's dive in. So, um, in Genesis 1:27, we see God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So just some quick observations from this verse is that, again, like I said, God created both men and women in his own image. And God gives both genders dominion over the earth. And I think that why he created two genders is that, um, that again, both genders would uniquely say something about God and who he is. So, what does femininity uniquely say about God? Um, in Genesis 2:18, we get the story of when woman was created. So, um, the Lord God said, "It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him." Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. But for Adam, there was no helper. There was not found helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So in the creation story, there's this very consistent pattern where God creates something and calls it good. But he breaks it right in this story. Um, because he creates man, and then he says it is not good for man to be alone. And what's really interesting is that he says this pre-fall. So sin has not entered the world at this point. Man is in perfect relationship with God. And it's in Eden, it's in paradise, that God says, hold up, it's not good that man should be alone. So the solution that God gives to this problem is Eve. And um, the word that is used um, when God says, where is this? Um, oh yeah, in the first verse, I will make a helper fit for him. So the word for helper in Hebrew is ezer. And um, this word has connotations of someone being like a strong advocate. Uh, a, a lot of times I think in our context, in our culture, when we hear the word helper, we tend to think of someone who is um, subservient or someone who is weaker. Um, but this word is actually used to describe, to describe God himself multiple times throughout the Bible. So I don't know if I have this, I don't think I have this verse on my side. But um, in Deuteronomy 33, 29, um, it says, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, and the sword of your triumph. And so that's, that's the same word in that verse. So again, I just think that's really helpful because when you just fit with kind of our cultural context lens on, that can sound like a bad thing that Eve was given to Adam as his helper, but um, it's been really helpful for me to think Eve was actually given to Adam as this as a strong advocate. Um, okay, so then God names her, or actually God gives 
Adam names her. Um, and this, I think, sheds light on her purpose. So um, Adam is created from the dirt, and he is named in relation to the dirt. Um, and, and that's kind of where we think that, um, and this is kind of going back to what Dave talked about, but that um, masculinity is about um, working well and, and, and doing good work, which Dave talked about last week. Um, and Eve is created from Adam and is named in relationship to Adam. So why did God make Eve differently? He could have made her in the same way as he made Adam. So what does it mean that he created Eve differently? I wish I knew. The Bible does not tell us. There's no verse in the Bible that says, hey, this is why God did it. So everything I'm about to say next is me inferring from Scripture what I think it means. Um, so I think that um, God's intended purpose for women has to do with meaningful relationships. Um, and again, I'm not saying this with like biblical authority. I'm again, I'm inferring this from the unique ways that Adam and Eve are made, also from the unique curses given to Adam and Eve, um, and just the unique ways that the Bible talks to men and women in the New Testament, and also just from my own experience. So um, I have up here. Um, I wish I've been trying to simplify it and to make this like easier to grasp, but here's what it is for now. Um, and again, this is just my definition that I found to be helpful. This is there's nothing in the Bible that has this exact phrasing. So if you don't like this, that's totally fine. But I think that God's intended purpose for femininity is that it would be relational in its nature. That femininity would be about inviting others to see and delight in beauty in herself, the world, and ultimately. So I'll give you a moment to like write that down, take some pictures if you want. And the three characteristics that I think are so important is that femininity is relational, it's invitational, and it's beautiful. And I think that those characteristics are present in men and women, but I think that femininity uniquely displays those uh, in a way that's, I think, more present than it is in masculinity. And ultimately, I think I have this on the next slide, ultimately, femininity reveals a God who is relational in his nature, inviting us to see and delight in him and the world that he made. Um, I, I heard a speaker one time say that masculinity shows us that, that God shows up and he gets things done, and femininity shows us that when God shows up, he's good and he does it well. <laughs> and I think that that's really helpful. Um, so, based off of this purpose, uh, what is then the core desire of women? If this is the purpose that God has made us for, what does that mean for our core desire? And you can go to the next slide. So, I think that the core desire of um, femininity, or the core desire of a woman, is to be delighted in as beautiful, both by God and by other men and women that she has invited to know her. And again, I'm inferring this uh, from a lot of different passages in scripture. Um, if you're reading this and you're like, oh, I don't really relate, again, that's fine. <laughs> um, I just think that this could be a helpful framework to think through uh, who you are and why you do what you do. Um, so if men are kind of asking the question, do I have what it takes, am I enough? If their core desire is to be enough and to, to do what it takes, then I, I think that what women are asking is, um, well, actually, I'll, I'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, okay, so let's move on to the curse on femininity. So God gives a very specific curse to women that's different from the curse he gives to men. So this is what he says to women. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. 
shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So it's really interesting because for Adam, God curses his work. But for Eve, God curses her relationships. So this, I think, again, kind of reinforces this idea of the different things that men and women are made for. Um, and it's a threefold curse. So he curses her uh, in childbearing. It's now going to be painful. And I think more broadly, you could say, it's going to hurt for women to bring forth life. Um, she also will have a desire for her husband that will not be fulfilled. Um, it's going to hurt for her to be in a relationship with him. And she's going to be ruled over, she's going to be ruled over by another person. Um, and it's, that's going to hurt to submit to him. So I think that you could say really broadly, God's intended curse for women is relational disappointment. Ultimately, leaving women feeling unseen and unwanted. Yes, there it is. So if men are asking, do I have what it takes? Um, because they've been cursed with utility, I think the question that women are asking is, am I wanted? Because for us, what's been cursed, for us, what's become futile, is the relationships that we are in with others and with God. So as women, we were made to confidently invite other people to know us, to see us, and to enjoy us. But now, because of the curse, we're no longer able to do that because we're no longer sure if there's anything in us that's worth seeing. I think that no woman in this room woke up this morning and looked at herself in the mirror and thought, wow, I love everything I see. <laughs> My guess is that every woman, and, and probably a lot of the men in the room too, woke up this morning and thought, there's a lot about myself that I don't like. There's a lot about myself that I wish was different. Um, we wonder if there's going to be anyone out there who will see us and love us for who we are. And I think I really saw this play out um, a couple summers ago. Zach Simmons and I were the staff project directors for our project, and um, we were at a staff, or we were like meeting together to just kind of plan out the week and talk about our talks. And, and Zach was just sharing with me um, some insecurities he was feeling about, like, will the effects of this project last? Like. Is anything we're saying mattering? Like, are, are the talks that we're giving mattering? Oh, um, are the talks that we're giving, like, are the things that we're sharing with people actually impacting them? And are, and are those things going to have a lasting difference? And, um, and and he was kind of sharing with tears, like, just the ways that those insecurities have been plaguing him. And I related with that. Like, I also wanted that project to have an effect. I also wanted my work to make an impact. But what was keeping me up at night, like what was bringing tears to my eyes, was wondering, like, what do people think of me? <laughs> like, as I'm giving talks, as I'm leading, as I'm out in the front, as I'm, like, putting myself out there and sharing my thoughts and my experiences, what do people think when they see me? And as I've had more time to reflect on that, I don't think that that is vanity. I think that that's how God created me as a woman. I think that there's a different there was a different effect on Zach when he was putting himself out there than there was on me. Both of us, when we put ourselves out there, walked away with different questions kind of burning on our hearts. And I think that that, again, goes to show the different ways that God has made men and women. So I think that at some point in this life, every woman is going to have to come face to face with the reality that her relationships do not fulfill her like she wants them to, and that loneliness is just part of her existence. Um, and I think that men have to do the same thing with, with realizing that 
at a certain point, all of your work is futile. Nothing actually will last on this life. And, and that's part of living under the curse, masculinity and femininity. We are living, it sounds like a fairy tale, but we are literally living under a curse. And for women, that's what this means. So our core desire has now become our core fear. And our core fear is that we would invite and there would be no response. And I think that that does two things to us. We either think that we're invisible or we're too much. We're not enough or we're too much. So one core fear for you as a woman could be, I'm not worth you seeing me. Like the reason why I don't have meaningful relationships is that there's just nothing in me that's worth anyone coming to see. Or you could think, the reason why I don't have meaningful relationships is that I'm too much. When people get to know me, they're overwhelmed by all that I am. So instead of inviting and trusting people to let to come into our lives and delight in the beauty that's in us, um, we invite, but either no one shows up or they show up and they hurt us. And um, I think one thing that makes me really, really sad is I think that because masculinity and femininity were designed to work together, I think when both those things are healthy, they cause each other to flourish. But I think that when both of them are broken, they really, really, really hurt each other. And I think that one of the most devastating effects um, of the curse on masculinity and femininity is that um, you can end up receiving attention that you did not ask for. And um, I think what that does to a woman is it makes you think, I must have done something to get this type of attention. And so, um, and I just want to show you how widespread this is. So, um, I know that objectification and abuse can happen to both men and women, um, but because I'm talking specifically about femininity, um, if you're a woman in the room and you have um, ever experienced any form of sexual abuse, or if you've ever felt objectified by the other gender, um, or, or abuse can also happen from women to women, um, if you've ever been catcalled, if you've ever just received attention that you did not ask for and that left you feeling just icky inside. Can you just raise your hand? So if you look around the room, I think almost potentially every woman's hand is raised. Um, and that just makes me so sad because I think that really has a devastating effect on both men and women because what it does to you is it tells you, I did something to get this attention. And I think that's why abuse and objectification can be so shameful for women because what it does is it takes your core desire and it twists it. And Satan uses your core desire against you. So I think that the way women cope with this um, is that we hide, we control, or we escape. And I can't tell you how many talks I've been to on women that only focus on these three things. Um, I've heard so many times, like, women are too manipulative, women are too controlling, women like need to be more content. And I think those things are true. I think that women have sinful strategies, but I think you need to understand where it's coming out of in order to fully address these problems. So I think that one of the ways women respond is that we hide. And I think this flushes itself out by you never open yourself up to people, you hide from the world, you never let anyone in, you constantly have a mask on, you're always just like a little bit disconnected and removed from the people around you. I think another way is that you control or you manipulate. And um, I used to think that someone who was controlling and manipulative was like the opposite of someone who hides. 
Um, but I think that the heart is the same. I think that when you control or when you manipulate, it's because you don't believe that people would just want you for you. I think it's because you think that you have to force people to come to you. Um, and then the last way I think we cope is that we escape. Um, and I think that this is really, really prevalent for both men and women right now. I think we turn to things like social media, Netflix, romantic comedies, food, fantasies, masturbation, pornography, sex, or we just shut off our emotions completely to deal with this unshakable desire to be loved that we just can't figure out a way to be satisfied. So, pretty dark picture. <laughs> um, but I think we, we need to go there because I think that this really is the experience of every woman in the room. And I think men, I think you do, I think you have your own burden of pain um, as well. But I think that this specifically is women's burden. But there's so much hope. Um, this is from Romans 8. Paul says, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So now we're on God's redemption of femininity. This is where it's good. So when God curses Adam and Eve in the garden, he had already planned to send his son to redeem them from the curse. In Genesis 3.15, he gives this promise. He says, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So one thing that's really cool about thinking about masculinity and femininity in these terms is that if you look at the life of Jesus, if you look at the, the work he did while he was here on earth, you can actually see very specific ways that Jesus redeems the curse on men and the curse on women. So if you remember, there's a threefold curse on women. And I think you can see ways that Jesus himself puts himself under that same curse. So the first uh, curse on Eve was pain in childbirth, that there's going to be pain in bringing forth life. Um, and in Isaiah 53, 11, this is what it says about what Jesus is going to do on the cross. It says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So Jesus brings his children to life, but only after passing through the extreme anguish of the cross. So as he went on the cross, as he brought us from death into life, in some ways, Jesus himself has put himself under the curse on women. Um, there's also pain in submitting. Jesus puts himself under that curse as well. Uh, in the garden, Jesus prays before he's crucified, and he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Remove the, the pathway that leads me to the cross. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus, in the, in the most extreme pain, in the most extreme suffering, submits himself to the will of the Father. And the last one is, um, ultimately, Jesus faced relational abandonment. Uh, Jesus was not seen. He was rejected. He was despised. Men turned their face from him. I wish I had put this up there, but um, go read Isaiah 53 and think about the ways that Jesus faced the curse of women in Isaiah 53. Um, I think that the, I don't know who says this, probably Tim Keller, but the most painful thing for Jesus on the cross was not the physical suffering, but it was the relational abandonment that he experienced from the Father. And in Mark uh, 15, 
These are Jesus' last words on the cross. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, lend us the bacchany, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus faced the most uh, extreme form of relational abandonment that any human being will ever experience. And the reason why he did this was to redeem you and I from the curse. He came to rescue you from your fear and restore you to a relationship with God. He was rejected by God so that you would forever be accepted and beloved by God. And when I think, when I hear the word invitational, I'm kind of a visual learner. Um, and when I hear it, I've always pictured like someone standing with their arms open. Like that posture just feels very invitational to me. And um, as I was preparing this talk for the first time, um, I suddenly got this image of Christ on the cross. And what is Jesus' posture on the cross? <laughs> His arms are literally nailed open on the cross as he's dying for us. And I think that that is such a beautiful image of <laughs> the Son of God uh, inviting all of us, <laughs> not just the women in the room, but men and women, inviting us into a relationship with him as he bears the most extreme version of the curse that has ever been born by any human. Um, so I just love it because Jesus himself redeems this person. He put himself under it, and then he redeems us and invites us back into a relationship with him. Um, so last week, Dayton mentioned the story of the woman at the well, and that's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels as well. I think the way that Jesus interacts with this woman is so powerful. And if you think of a woman who knows the curse on relationships, it's this woman. She's been married five times, and the man she's with now is not her husband. She's been rejected by the women in her town. That's why she's alone at the well in the middle of the day. Um, and she's a Samaritan. So uh, in a way, she's been rejected from the temple. She's not allowed to come in and offer sacrifices and interact with the God of the Old Testament. Um, and I think that the way Jesus interacts with her specifically as a woman is one of the most powerful stories in the New Testament. And Alexis and I have been watching The Chosen. And uh, it, for those of you who don't know what it is, it's a um, TV show uh, going through just like the life of Jesus. And so far we've cried in almost every episode. And this one made me cry more than any of the other ones. Um, I cried at just while like trying to find what place I should start at yesterday. <laughs> so um, it, the, the whole interaction is about 10 minutes long. We're only going to watch the, the last few minutes of it just for the sake of time. But I just want to set it up. Um, Jesus has come to this well, and um, and it's just him and the woman. His disciples have gone into town to get food. And this woman is not having it. She's tired. She's exhausted. Uh, he's a Jewish man. There's no reason why he should be nice to her. And they've been having this conversation for a few minutes now um, about why he's talking to her, what he's offering to her. He's told her a few times that he's offering her living water. Uh, they've had a conversation about where you should worship, if it's on the temple, if it's on the mountain. And the whole time, this woman has just been extremely closed off to Jesus, which makes sense given her experience with both men and women in her past. Um, but Jesus keeps pressing in. He keeps pressing in. And she is putting up wall after wall after wall. <laughs> she does not want to be known by him. She is not trying to invite him in at all. Uh, but Jesus keeps going, keeps going, keeps going to get at her heart. And the result is really powerful. So 
Um, let's watch. So, wait, I'm maybe if I can hit the lights in the Story, and I love how they uh, portray it because I think you get to see time. Oh, I just think you get to see it all play out, and that just leads so well into my last point, which is just how does God restore femininity? And you even see it, uh, <laughs> you see it so clearly in the woman at the well, the way that she converts her whole town, and she tells them, Come see a man who literally told me everything I ever did. And he did not tell her good things. Like, these are some of the most shameful things, the most painful things about her life. And those are the very reasons why she becomes convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. Also, she, I think, becomes one of the most successful evangelists in the gospel. The whole town of Samaria comes out to see Jesus and is eventually converted by him. So, 
Um, okay, so I have three ways that um, God's Spirit redeems femininity or restores it. So I think the first thing is that as women, we need to repent of the sinful ways we've tried to overcome the curse. Um, and this is going to sound kind of dark, but I think that as women, we just need to face and embrace the fact that this side of heaven, loneliness is going to be part of our lives. <laughs> I think that um, there's a way that it was just really helpful for me to think, like, I'm literally living under a curse right now. <laughs> and that sounds so uh, so strange to think about. But in this life, you will never fully get over your loneliness. And I think that when you embrace that, it just kind of frees you to think, like, there's not necessarily something wrong with you when you do not feel fulfilled by the relationships in your life. That actually, I think that's a grace from God. Because what that is, is that's a reminder that you were made for heaven. That's where you're going. This life is not where you're going to experience the greatest fulfillment. So um, I think that's the first step, is, is embracing that loneliness and longing are just part of your nature. Um, and then I also think that part of repenting is being broken over the ways that we've tried to escape that loneliness in sinful ways. There are ways that we have um, made idols out of people, out of things, out of relationships. Uh, there's ways that we've suppressed the truth about who God is. Um, there's ways that we have escaped, we've controlled, we've tried to hide. Um, and I think that there's a right sense of brokenness that we should feel over those things. But just like the woman at the well, those things don't define us anymore. If you are in Christ, uh, he now is who defines you. And so now we strive for a holy feminine by the power of the spirit within us. And so um, when you just accept that loneliness is part of your existence, that really frees you up to just start living your life. <laughs> um, and I really like First Peter. That's what we studied two summers ago. And um, this is what First Peter says to women. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And um, I, I never liked the phrase, like, gentle and quiet spirit, because I just got this image of, like, Cinderella, like, sweeping ashes off of the fireplace. But um, but the, the, the imagery that uh, Peter's writing is something that's at rest. Another word could be, like, a tranquil spirit. Um, and so... What it means is that you have this beauty that is free from disturbance and is calm. And <laughs> that's what I want so badly. Like, I want a spirit that is at rest, a spirit that um, is just okay, a spirit that is not constantly trying to find more and more fulfillment in the relationships that I have. Um, and I think ultimately what Peter's getting at here is that as women, we are called to pursue what God finds beautiful. And we are freed from trying to create our own beauty. Because we're not going to find it on our own. The things that secular culture promises are not going to actually give you a lasting sense of worth and beauty. But if you are in Christ, um, pursue what God finds beautiful. Um, and I think when you do that, your external beauty can become an overflow of the beauty of your inner person. And when I really love Sundays because I feel like everyone like undergoes this major blow-up for <laughs> Sunday morning. And... Um, and I don't think that that comes out of vanity. Like, I think that a woman's desire to look beautiful and to dress in a beautiful way, I think that's really a picture of God. Like, I think that when you are doing that because you are at rest and you are secure in who you are in Christ, 
I think that that can be a really, really beautiful display of, of God's Like, if you look at creation, clearly our God is a God who loves beauty and attention to detail. And so that's just a side note. I, I think that that's a really cool picture of um, how femininity shows God. Um, and then the last thing that I want to say on this is that um, as you strive for holy femininity, um, femininity is not passive. It's not, you're not waiting for something. And I think that that's what some of those early definitions I shared, I think that that's kind of what they can make you feel is that like, as a woman, to be fully a woman, you have to just like wait for a godly man to come around. I literally read a book in junior high, I think Liz read it too, that was literally called Waiting for Prince Charming. <laughs> and um, I think that that is not at all what Jesus intends for women. Um, and one thing I think is really cool is that, and I don't know how much I can draw from this, but I'm gonna draw a lot, um, that the church is referred to as a woman. And um, we know that even in a marriage, like the relationship between a husband and a wife is supposed to be reflective of the relationship between Christ and his bride. And the commandments given to the church are not to just sit and wait for our Prince Charming to come back. Like, the commandments given to the church are that we're supposed to move towards suffering. We're supposed to go into evil and wage war against it. Um, and we're supposed to expand the kingdom of God until Jesus returns. And so I think that for femininity, the same is true of you. Um, you are not a damsel in distress waiting for a godly man to come and rescue you. Uh, when a godly man comes, that's awesome. That's going to be a beautiful thing. But your femininity doesn't start when he shows up. Your femininity started when Christ showed up and made you his own and then sent you on a mission into the world. Because, again, remember, women have something unique to say about who God is. And so the world needs you <laughs> to be out there. The world needs men and women to be out there because the world needs to know who God is in his fullness. And then the very last point is that remember that Christ is coming back for you. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying about embracing the loneliness, that um, Jesus is coming back for his bride. And when he comes, he promises to wipe away every tear from your eye. We will at last see the face of the one who has loved us more than anyone here will ever love us. The Bible says that we will know fully as we have been fully known. Your deep, deep, deep desire for a relationship that will never be fulfilled here on earth will finally, at last, one day be fulfilled when you see Jesus in space. So I want to just end with um, Revelation 21. Do I have that up there? Um, this is what John says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with them. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And one day, our, our pain here, our loneliness here, our longing here, we won't remember it anymore. <laughs> we will be with Christ, and he himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Um, and so I think that also just gives us the endurance to keep doing it here, to keep living our lives, to keep inviting other people to know us, to keep um, bearing 
the weight of big and little ways to feel rejected by the people around us because we know how the story is going to end. We will one day uh, see our king uh, and we will be his bride. So with that, I am going to pray and then I'll say something <laughs> But let's pray. Um, Jesus, I am so grateful um, for the ways that uh, you interact with women. Um, I'm so grateful that uh, you entered into their stories of brokenness. Um, the woman at the well is not the only woman that you do that with. Um, you had, um, you were so free in the way that you interacted with them. And Jesus, I ask that that's what all the women in this room would feel right now, that um, you are a God who draws near to them in their pain and in their brokenness, that you are a God who breaks through the walls that we put up. You are a God who sees into our hearts and knows those longings that we have. Um, you are a God who knows what it is like to feel rejection. Um, and so, who better than you uh, to turn to? And so, God, I pray for the women in this room. I pray that they would see you in that room. God, would this be a room filled with men and women who, um, whose masculinity and femininity have been restored by you? who are free to serve one another and love one another um, and image you to one another. Would this room be ambassadors for you um, in a really beautiful, healthy, God-glorifying expressions of masculinity and femininity? So, and God, if there's anything I said that was not helpful or that um, didn't feel quite right or that felt offensive, um, would you put that on people's heart? Would there be really good conversations that come out of that? I Thank you for listening to this message from the 2021 Summer Training Project hosted by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the College Ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church. Please feel free to share this message with others, but please don't charge, edit, or alter the content in any way without the written permission of Campus Outreach Minneapolis.